calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. going to get worse. Elias turned over, sticky sheets peeling off his back. The heat was oppressive and he knew sleep wouldn't come, but he laid there a little longer anyway. Eventually, he gave up and rolled out of bed, careful not to wake Cass. He crept out to the front porch, where he built an awning. It was completely overgrown with ivy now, but Elias liked it that way. He could hide behind the leaves and observe the world without the threat of being noticed. Whenever he couldn't sleep, which was often in the height of summer, he'd sit on the porch and think, encased safely in his fortress of ivy. He was thinking on this night about his college counselor. He didn't know why he was thinking of her, but this was often how thoughts came to him late at night. They just appeared. Her name was Nikita Brown, and she was one of the few faculty members in school whose advice he'd taken to heart. She was stern, but also kind and compassionate. He liked her because he knew that she'd taken the time to read his admissions essay in which he'd revealed a great deal about himself, about being an orphan and the difficulties of his upbringing. He knew this because his freshman year she'd confided in him that she, too, had grown up without parents. Knowing this inspired in him a level of trust that he didn't share with most people. He'd confided in her and respected her opinions, 
and over the four years he'd spent at Edgewater State, she'd given him many pieces of valuable advice. But it was one particular thing she'd said to him that he was thinking about then. It was something she'd said his junior year, when they'd met one day to discuss an assignment he'd missed. Unable to provide her with a satisfying excuse, she had looked at him, with arms crossed, and said, Boys run, hide, and play. Men get things done. He sat in the darkness, shrouded behind the vines of ivy. Boys run, hide, and play, he whispered to himself. It was a piece of advice he'd thought about often when he was a younger man, but now it seemed like such a distant part of his past. Boys run, hide, and play. Men get things done. He wondered if he'd been living his life like a boy or a man, but the only answer he could arrive at was that he was living his life the same way he always had. He was simply surviving. He leaned back in his chair and relished in a faint breeze that had begun to waft in through the ivy. It felt like mercy against his skin. His thoughts quieted, and after a while he drifted off. He dozed until just before sunrise, when a storm began to roll in. He jolted awake at a crack of thunder in the distance. For a moment he thought it might have been a gunshot or an explosion, but when he heard the raindrops plinking against the roof, he breathed a sigh of relief. He crept back inside to find Cass already awake. Did you see any of the cats out there? she asked. Elias shook his head. I hope they found a place to stay dry, she said, walking over to the back door and cracking it so the cats could come in. It was moments like these that made Elias realize why he loved her so much. Through everything that had happened, she still found it within herself to care. She'd never stopped worrying about the needs of others, be they people or animals, friends or complete strangers. Elias didn't understand how anyone could still have so much to give. After everything they'd been through, after everything that had become of the world, she still cared. You want coffee? he asked, walking into the kitchen. Cass nodded and Elias balled up a piece of paper and tossed it in their wood-burning stove. It was a gnarled hunk of iron and it looked completely out of place in their kitchen, situated next to shiny appliances that no longer served any purpose. But the stove was vital to their survival, especially in the winter. While Elias made coffee, Cass cut a few slices of bread and prepared two bowls of oats. Should we harvest anything today? she asked. Elias took his eyes off the simmering pot of water and looked out the kitchen window. It was one of the only windows in the house that wasn't boarded up. It faced the backyard, and through it Elias saw rows of vegetable plants and fruit trees. The crops were packed closely together, filling every usable bit of earth in the yard. Yeah, he said. I'm sure there's some potatoes that are ready to come up. When the water started boiling, he lifted it from the flame and poured it into a battered old French press. He strained the grounds and poured them each a cup. They didn't speak much while they ate breakfast. As a couple, they had always been fairly comfortable with silence. Silence could be relaxing. But they had also come to learn that silence had a tactical value. 
The quieter they were, the better their chances of survival. Their lives were engineered around discretion, their most basic of intentions simply to not draw undue attention to themselves. After breakfast, as another day of sweltering heat began, Cass and Elias dressed and went out into the backyard. They had built their small urban farm to be as covert as possible. From the front of the house, you wouldn't even know it existed, unless you were close enough to hear the muted clucking of the chickens in their insulated coop. In total, the couple cultivated apples, peaches, walnuts, corn, peppers, tomatoes, potatoes, cucumbers, green beans, blackberries, and strawberries. The chickens also produced a steady amount of eggs, and there was a creek nearby where they could fish. Their neighbor, long since deceased, had a well in his backyard, which helped with irrigation. And anything they needed but couldn't grow or produce themselves, like wheat or coffee, they could barter for, given there was someone trustworthy to barter with. They let very few people into their inner circle, let very few people know even where they lived, and in fact had gone to great lengths to make their house look unoccupied. Which, on some level, was still kind of funny to Elias, considering the fact that he and Cass were its rightful owners. They had bought the house in 2019 for just under $400,000, but by 2033 it wasn't worth a dime. There were whole cities worth of houses. None of them were worth anything. He and Cass could have any house they wanted now. They could just pick one out and move their stuff in. But of course, they didn't. They never even discussed it. Houses were all the same to them. Whether they were big and lavish or old and cramped, it didn't really matter. They were all filled with the same obsolete appliances. Furnaces and refrigerators and AC units that didn't work. Plumbing that had no water pressure. What was more important to them than size or luxury was the strategic placement of their house, and they already had that in spades. Their house was small and unassuming, but had a massive backyard that covered a quarter acre. It was on top of a small bluff, making it hard to sneak up on, and they'd boarded up most of the windows to give it a deserted look. Dense foliage surrounded the property, as it did most of the homes on their street, and half of the year it was covered in snow. It was located in what was at one point known as Colorado, but like the rest of the developed world, Colorado had ceased to exist. The cause of civilization's downfall was still a matter of debate among those who had managed to survive it. Even before things had erupted into abject chaos, it had become increasingly difficult to derive any objective truth from what was going on in the world. Everything in the media was tinged by corporate interest but nobody was interested in figuring out what was really going on. A series of car bombs had exploded along the eastern seaboard in the late 2020s. The violence led to protests, and the protests led back to violence, from a government that was eager to show force. Supply chains started to falter, and then the stock market abruptly crashed through the floor. Nobody was prepared for what was about to happen because nobody knew just how bad it could get. It was hard for the average person to imagine a world stripped of all the amenities and conveniences, all the order and protection that the modern world provided. But over a period of time that would later be referred to as the Blood Month, all the trappings of the civilized Western world 
would vanish. It began in April of 2031, just after the final market crash, and as violence continued to erupt across the country for reasons that nobody could readily comprehend. Some people spoke of insurgency. Others declared that we'd been infiltrated by an outside force. Gradually, people stopped going to work, opting instead to spend their time barricading themselves into their houses or looting and stocking supplies. Police forces and emergency response teams began to disintegrate. And since nobody enforced the laws, nobody cared to obey them. Even the concept of crime eventually disappeared from people's minds. There were no real crimes anymore, only various acts of survival. By the second week of the blood month, 70% of the United States had lost power. Streets across the country were littered with traces of violence. Abandoned vehicles and desecrated corpses rested in the avenues and alleyways of every major city. People only left their homes under desperate circumstances, and those that did never traveled with any real assurance of safety. Without access to utilities and basic resources like water and medicine, fatalities soared into the hundreds of millions. When the blood month came to an end, nearly 85% of Americans had perished, an estimated 300 million people. The stench of death was everywhere. Some survivors fled the country, but conditions weren't much better anywhere else. The delicate system of international trade and order that once stabilized the world had crumbled. National governments toppled like dominoes as currencies became worthless and trade routes were severed. Through it all, Cass and Elias did the only thing they could. They fortified their home and they held on to each other. Although Cass had never envisioned the apocalyptic future they would live through, she'd always known she could trust Elias, no matter what happened. She'd known that ever since she met him, back when her name was Cassandra Davis, before her and Elias had become Mr. and Mrs. Van Aken. But when things did fall apart, she realized just how much he was willing to sacrifice, how far he was willing to go to keep them safe. He did everything without hesitation. He was so deliberate she often found herself surprised at how seamlessly her partner was able to acclimate to the harrowing new world they lived in. And though it was something Elias never acknowledged, he was, on some level, aware of it as well. He had an almost superhuman ability to disassociate. And in a way, he felt like he'd always been ready for the world to end. Growing up without parents, his whole life had been a crisis of uncertainty. All he ever had was his ability to adapt, to survive despite the odds. When the sun was at its peak in the sky and temperatures were rising into the mid-90s, Cass and Elias gathered their harvest into wicker baskets and went inside. Covered in dirt and sweat from working in the yard, they undressed and rinsed off. Their shower was a rudimentary contraption in their basement bathroom. Above the bathtub hung a steel bucket with dozens of tiny holes drilled in the bottom. On the upper floor of the house, they had set up two 80-gallon drums which they routinely filled with water from their neighbor's well. A valve was attached to the bottom of each drum, and two hoses led through holes they drilled in the floor down to the lower levels of the house. One hose led to the kitchen sink, which they used to cook and clean and the other hose led to the bucket above the basement bathtub. 
When they stepped into the tub, they opened the valve on the hose, and gravity pushed water down into the bucket, where it would trickle through the holes and provide a fairly steady stream of water. Enough to clean oneself, at least. The water wasn't heated, but on days like this, when temperatures were nearing the hundreds, it didn't really matter. After showering, they waited out the day's heat in their basement. In a spare bedroom, Cass had set up something of an art studio. There, she would make paintings and sculptures, using various items she found while foraging. She made tiny cityscapes out of discarded computer chips, constructed intricate figures out of electrical cable. Her latest work was a miniature theater set inside of a hollowed-out video game console. She crafted a tiny audience out of wire and match heads, strung up a little projector screen with a piece of fabric. Elias was less focused on creative output in his own free time. He preferred, instead, to read. He occasionally wrote, and at one point even dreamed of becoming a writer. But as time went on, he grew to favor the immersive escape of reading over the arduous process of trying to organize his thoughts into words. And luckily for him, he had plenty of books at his disposal. Even before the world had ended, he'd been an ardent bibliophile, amassing a collection that covered every wall of his office. He read the classics, literary greats like Kafka and Maya Angelou. He read the stories of Amy Hempel and Raymond Carver. And he finally got around to James Joyce's Ulysses, though he struggled to make sense of it. When night fell, they made a stew for dinner. They cooked it over an open fire in the backyard to keep the temperature inside the house as low as possible. But even in the dead of night, it hardly reached a temperature that could be deemed comfortable. Cass seemed to have little trouble sleeping in the heat, as did the cats. But Elias found himself wide awake again, sprawled out across a sodden mattress. In the early morning hours, he rose from the bed and went out to his front porch hideout. He peeked through the leaves at the stars in the night sky. They were clearer and brighter in recent years than he'd ever seen them in his life. As he looked up at the sky mindlessly, he again found himself arrested by memory. It was one from nine years before, in the beginning of 2031, just before the artifice of civilization came crashing down. A bomb had killed 38 people at a library in Denver that day, and having heard the news, Cass left work early. When he arrived home, Elias found her in the basement, watching news coverage of the event on her laptop. Her eyes were red, her cheeks wet with tears. After a while, Elias convinced her to shut the laptop, that her obsessing over footage of atrocities wouldn't do anything to help. I know, she said. It's just, I've been scared a lot lately. Things have been really bad, and I'm afraid it's going to get worse. In the moment, he had comforted her, oblivious of what would occur just months later. Don't worry, he had said, and everything will be okay. When he thought back now, he couldn't believe how naive he had been, how much trust he had put in a clearly broken system. It wasn't something he held against himself, necessarily, but it was sometimes surprising that even a hardened cynic like him, whose faith in humanity had never been high, had failed to foresee the depravity that would soon come. He was lost in rumination when a sound broke the quiet stillness. He sat bolt upright, 
listening intently for sounds in the darkness. And then he heard it again. Footsteps. Several pairs of them. He peeked through the ivy at the moonlit street in front of his house. The footsteps gradually got louder, and soon two figures came into view. They wore matching gray uniforms and carried torches and rifles. Elias could tell immediately that they were members of the Resumption Alliance. His breath seized, and he shrunk away from the vines. He'd never seen members of the RA this close to his house. The Resumption Alliance had formed just after the Blood Month ended, making it their goal to restore order and rebuild civilization. They began erecting protected camps across the charred remnants of the country, making their presence known by distributing flyers that promised food, water, safety, and shelter to all survivors who wished to join them. From what Elias had gathered, life as a member of the RA began as everything it purported to be. They had freedom and protection, food and resources. Some camps even had electricity and running water. By 2032, the RA had over a million members, a massive percentage of what remained of the American population. With the allure of armed protection and a seemingly endless supply of food, it seemed like a natural choice for many. But as time went on, the RA failed to realize that they were consuming resources much faster than they were producing them. The birth rate had plummeted, and every year fewer and fewer members were able to do the work needed to sustain the population. The group's leaders met and decided on a plan to unite some of the disparate groups into a more centralized location so they could more efficiently feed and shelter them. But this did little to strengthen their numbers. By the mid-2030s, the RA's population had fallen to only a few hundred thousand. They were still starving and overworked, in many cases deprived of basic medical care. The group's aging leaders met again, and this time they rolled out a plan more radical than their previous one. They announced a strategy of enforced repopulation. Citing the fallen birth rate and the lack of manpower needed to sustain the cultivation of food and resources, they declared that effective immediately, every sufficiently mature couple would be required to produce no fewer than three offspring in their lifetime. What they didn't announce to their followers, not right away at least, was that their breeding quota didn't only apply to couples. Single members of the group would be paired with compatible partners and forced to bear children with them. Couples that were unable to reproduce would be broken up and paired with fertile partners, and those who, for one reason or another, were biologically incapable of reproducing, would be led away from the camp and killed. All in the name of saving precious resources. When the implications of this totalitarian agenda became known to the group, it resulted in a series of revolts. But being that the RA was so heavily armed and comprised such a large fraction of the surviving population, no defectors held any real power against them. It was around this time that the RA also took an oppositional stance to anyone living outside their camps. Where they had once lived peacefully with non-RA members, they now saw all surviving parties as liabilities, obstacles that stood between them and the resources they considered to be their own. Elias stayed perfectly still 
practically held his breath as the two men walked past his house. He wondered what they were doing all the way out there. The nearest RA camp was 12 miles away on the outskirts of Denver. Perhaps they were raiding houses, looking for medical supplies and ammunition? Elias didn't think so. They looked more like they were scouting, an idea that scared him deeply, because it implied that they were coming back. They would have a field day if they uncovered his property. Everything he owned would be plundered, and he and his wife would be killed at best. He didn't want to think about what would happen if they weren't. When the men had gone, he crept back inside and went down to his basement office, where he kept one of his guns. It was a Glock 19 that he'd taken off the body of a dead cop he'd come across in the street a few years before. He took it back upstairs with him and placed it in the drawer of his bedside table. He thought about waking Cass up and telling her what he'd seen, but he knew she wouldn't get back to sleep if he did. So instead he just laid there, listening through the darkness for the sound of approaching footsteps. Nothing ever came, though and sometime in the early morning hours, Elias drifted off for a brief and fitful sleep. When he awoke, it was mid-morning, and the house was already sweltering. He felt like this had been the hottest summer of his life. But if he was honest, every summer felt hotter than the one preceding it. As he and Cass ate breakfast, he told her about the RA members he'd seen walking down the street in the middle of the night. Her face went pale at the news. It was something she had feared for a long time, ever since she first heard about the RA's drastic plan for repopulation. There was a time when she and Elias would have welcomed a child, but that time had long since passed. Bringing a new life into the world they inhabited seemed like an act of overt cruelty, not to mention the fact that she and Elias were in their mid-forties now. She was healthy and active but any pregnancy at her age would bring considerable risk. Being forced to birth a child, let alone three of them, could very well kill her. But she knew the RA had no concern for women's health. Women were just a means of production to them. She'd heard of women in their fifties being forced to give birth there. She'd heard of teenage rape victims dying in labor. It terrified Cass to think about the RA but she didn't show it on her face. She had lived through too much to be broken by fear, and she would face this with the same stern resolve she faced everything else with. We're gonna be all right, Elias whispered, putting his arms around her. Funny how she still found comfort in expressions like that. After breakfast, they tried to work for a while in the garden, but neither of them got much done. It was impossible to focus when all they could think about was their safe haven being raided. Elias felt like he spent the whole day looking over his shoulder. When they were finished, they gathered all their garden tools, shovels and rakes and baskets, and hid them in a shed on the corner of the lot. Anyone who stumbled across their property would know immediately that the land was being tended to, that the crops were being carefully cultivated but they did everything they could to obscure their presence. Before they went inside, Elias went into the garage and came out with another one of their guns. It was an old Remington bolt-action rifle, and he placed it in Cass's hands. Just keep it with you for now, he said. She agreed, 
despite her aversion to firearms. It wasn't as though she didn't know how to use them. She was well-equipped to handle the rifle, had fired it many times. She just detested weapons. She hated the way they felt in her hands, hated what she'd seen them do to people. When she and Elias went hunting, she preferred to use the bow. But considering the circumstances they were in, even she agreed that the rifle was more suitable. The RA had grown increasingly violent in recent years, and they never left their camps without weapons. They were given ruthless orders to kill anyone unwilling to contribute to their system, and Cass and Elias knew that attempting to defend themselves unarmed would be futile. It still baffled Cass, from time to time, just how savage mankind had become. She remembered a time just before the fall, when conspiracy theorists were insisting that humanity had fallen victim to a silent invasion. She'd thought the idea ridiculous. But looking back on all the bloodshed and depravity that had transpired since, she wasn't so sure. Had humanity been infiltrated? Infected by a toxic agent that bred malice? Or had they always been this barbaric, their latent cruelty veiled by an illusion of sophistication? When Cass got inside, she found Elias sitting at the kitchen table. He was fastening an improvised silencer to the muzzle of his Glock. His homemade suppressor was crafted out of an oil filter he'd picked off a broken-down Dodge Ram he'd found a few years before. It didn't completely silence the weapon, but hushed it considerably. When evening came, the pair felt like they'd spent the whole day standing on a razor's edge. They'd been waiting for hours for their attackers to arrive, but nobody ever came. And as darkness descended, they wondered how much danger they were really in. Still, they didn't take any chances. They made themselves scarce and refrained from lighting candles or doing anything else that would indicate the presence of life in their home. Elias only realized he'd drifted off when he was awoken by one of the cats jumping on his chest. The cat loped across the bed and disappeared off the other side of the mattress. Elias was about to fall back to sleep when he heard something that didn't sound like a cat. He perked up, listening intently. It was coming from outside, and it sounded like boots on gravel. He rose and slid a pair of shoes onto his feet, grabbing the Glock off his nightstand. He approached one of the windows, peering out between the cracks in the boards. It was hard to make anything out in the darkness, but he could tell someone was out there. He could hear movement and muted voices. He turned to leave and Cass stirred awake. What's going on? she asked. I think they're back, he said as he left the room. A few seconds later, the back door opened and Elias eased himself outside. He crept between two rows of corn, crouching low as he crossed the garden. When he reached the base of a large ginkgo tree at the edge of his property, he tucked his gun into his belt and pulled himself up through the branches. He settled into his leafy turret and waited. His pulse was racing and his eyes were wide, staring through the darkness for signs of movement. After a few seconds, he spotted what looked like the same two men he'd seen the night before. 
The uniformed men had made their way into his neighbor's backyard. Both of them carried rifles and flashlights, and they seemed to be doing general reconnaissance. They peeked in through the windows of his neighbor's vacant house, perused the backyard, and then came the moment that Elias had feared. They discovered the well. Elias had fastened a hand pump to the lid of the well so he and Cass could pull out water without electricity. One of the men grabbed the lever and thrust it down on it a few times. Water gushed out of the pump and splashed into a bucket that stood below. Somebody's definitely been using this, one of the men said to the other. They lifted the beams of their flashlights, illuminating the fence that bordered Elias's yard. Don't do it, Elias was thinking. Don't do it. But one of the men had caught sight of a hose leading through the fence. It was one he and Cass used to transport water, so they didn't have to lift buckets up over the fence. The man followed the hose to where it disappeared through the chain link. Elias fastened his grip on the Glock, feeling sweat pour from his palms onto the handle. He watched the man hang his rifle from one shoulder before pulling himself up and straddling the fence. Holy shit, the man said, calling back to his comrade. This place is a gold mine. He lowered himself into Elias' backyard. Unknowingly, he'd put himself just below where Elias sat perched in the ginkgo tree. Elias exhaled slowly. He thought about calling down to the man, giving him a chance to explain himself. But instead, he shot him through the top of the head and watched him collapse on a tomato plant. The gun made a sharp thump sound as it discharged. Devin? The other man shouted. What the hell was that? But Devin was dead. His frightened partner poked his head up over the fence and then quickly disappeared again. As Elias jumped down from the tree, he could see the man retreating towards the street. He crept through the foliage and took cover near the back door of his house. He was anticipating the man to go around the fence and approach his house from the front and his suspicions were confirmed. As he crouched there, gun low at his side, he could see a vague figure approaching through the darkness. They were walking along the side of his house and had turned off their flashlight, but held their rifle at the ready. He held his position for a few long moments as the figure approached, and as the steady, almost silent footsteps drew near, he emerged from the corner of his house, drew his weapon, and fired twice. As the second RA member fell to the ground in front of him, blood already soaking through the man's gray uniform, Elias lowered his weapon. He drew air into his lungs, feeling his body begin to relax, when another loud crack rang out, but from somewhere behind him, he stumbled forward, feeling a surge of searing hot pain in his chest. He turned around to see a young man, no more than 17 years old, dressed in a gray uniform and still pointing a rifle in his direction. In his haste, Elias had assumed there were only two of them, as there had been the night before, but apparently the RA had seen it fit to send three tonight. Elias had barely even realized he was shot 
when the back door swung open and Cass appeared. Before anyone even had a chance to react, she took aim and shot the young man directly in the forehead. It stunned Elias how swiftly his wife had acted. She'd seen the face of a kid, and she'd killed him without hesitation. It occurred to him, in that moment, that compassion and violence aren't always so far apart. As Cass set the gun down and came rushing towards him, Elias lowered himself to the ground. The earth was cool and soft against his skin. The burning pain had subsided, and he felt something akin to comfort. He could hear Cass saying, Hey, hey, stay with me. She told him that she was going to get the forceps and the alcohol. You're gonna be okay, he heard her say. He kept listening for her voice to return, and while he waited, he felt like he could hear other voices, too. Deep down in that place inside him, Familiar voices. Voices he hadn't heard in a very long time. And as much as he wanted to greet them, to be welcomed in their embrace, he couldn't. Not just yet. Hey, Jeff here. Uh, If you enjoy my podcast, I just want to let you know that I have a Patreon that you can subscribe to. It's $3 per episode, and you get to listen to every episode a few days early. Plus, you also get access to my full-length audiobook, Solace. It's sort of a cosmic horror slash mystery story where this journalist uncovers uh, unexplainable disappearance and sort of becomes obsessed with it. You can listen to the first 30 minutes for free in the episode titled Solace. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on whatever podcasting app you like. And the link for it is in the show notes, as well as in the bio for the show. But if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. You can also leave a rating or write a review. That goes a long way for helping the show get listeners. You can follow me on social media. The links for Instagram and Twitter will be in the show notes as well. And of course, just thank you for being here. It really uh, seriously means a lot that you listen to this. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.